Well, I don't know uh, if anyone here has one of those friends or a spouse who every now and then when they're driving, you need to just like reach over and take a hold of the steering wheel so that you don't drive into a ditch. Anyone? Don't put up your hand if it's going to get you into trouble. Okay, if they're here, you don't need to put up your hand. Uh, But I have one of those friends. And I love her very much. She's a wonderful person. And really, she is a great driver when she's paying attention. But it's a really big world out there, you know, and there's lots to see. And so sometimes the paying attention part doesn't come all that easily for her. And many years ago, uh, we worked together at a summer camp. And the two of us would often drive into town to run errands. And during that summer, we got this system down. If there's anything that she wanted to look out, if she wanted to like see who was out in the field, if she needed to like put on mascara, if she was telling a story and she got really lost in thought, she knew that I'd be there. She knew I'd be there. It was like a trust fall, right? She knew I would reach over and I would take a hold of the steering wheel until she was ready to get back into the game. It became seamless, really. And so that was the kind of dynamic that was at play when my friend was in the driver's seat. And uh, one day, we were just setting out to run some errands. We had pulled out of the camp driveway. And as we approached the first intersection, my friend started to brake, which was an appropriate thing to do because there was a stop sign. Uh, stop sign there. And so she started to break, but then I don't know what happened. Like maybe there was a squirrel, maybe she was like talking and she was really uh, deep in thought. I don't really remember, but she never really completed the breaking. And we just kept getting closer and closer to this stop sign. I remember thinking like, surely, surely she's going to stop this car. Like surely she knows what this great big red hexagon is telling her she needs to do. But she didn't. She didn't, as though in slow motion, and actually quite literally, (laughs) in slow motion, we coasted right into this stop sign. Not through the stop sign. You thought she was going to go through the stop sign. There was a bend in the road. She hit the stop sign. And just kind of bounced back and forth for a moment and then stood back up in, in, in place. And there was a moment of pause. And then my friend looked at me and she said, did I just hit that stop sign? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and then we laughed at the irony for a moment before we got out of the car uh, to check for damage which it wasn't really all that bad, but she did get a little nick. We live in a world that is full of signs, right? Signs that prompt us to stop and to pay attention because they point to something beyond themselves. They give us important information about where we are and what, uh, what's going on around us and what the situation requires of us, right? If you see a sign that has the letter P on it and it's crossed out, with a red bar, you know 
that it doesn't mean you have to leave if your name is Peter or Penelope, right, or Patricia. We all know what that sign means, right? That sign means you can't put your car there. If you're out for dinner and you close your menu, you put it on the edge of the table, the waiter recognizes that as a sign that you are ready to give your order. If you're out in the woods, right, going for a nice little hike, and you see a guy get down on one knee and take a woman's hands into his own, you don't wonder why she isn't, like, helping him up. <laughs> right? You know, you know by his posture, by this gesture, that he is asking her to marry him, right? All day, every day, we are surrounded by signs and symbols that point to bigger realities, that help us understand what's happening in the world around us and that call us to respond appropriately. This morning, we are continuing our series in the book of John. And one of the unique features of the book of John is that it is structured around seven things that Jesus does that John refers to as signs. Now, these are things that Jesus does that we would often describe as miracles, And when the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, talk about Jesus doing his miracles, they tend to use the same word. Usually they use this Greek word, dunamis. And that word means power. But John tends to use a different word. When John's talking about Jesus doing his miracles, he uses the word simeon. And that word in the Greek means sign. And John does this very intentionally because he wants us to know that Jesus' miracles weren't just acts of kindness. They weren't just opportunities to show how powerful he was. Jesus' miracles were signs that revealed things about his identity, that revealed things about what God was doing in the world through him. Jesus' miracles were signs that connected him with the unfolding story of God's salvation, right? breaking into the world, God coming into the world to redeem and restore his good creation. N.T. Wright describes the signs as moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other. Moments when heaven is opened and when the transforming power of God's love bursts into the present world. And towards the end of his gospel, John tells us what he hopes our response is when we read about these signs that Jesus performed. So John 20, verses 30 to 31, say this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The signs are intended to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, and that by believing in him, that we might have life in his name. And so this morning, we're going to focus on Jesus' first sign, which we read about in John chapter 2. If you have your Bible uh, with you, you can open it up to John chapter 2. And we are going to look at verses 1 to 11. Now, one of the things that's really important to know about 
uh, the book of John is that it is packed with like layer on top of layer of meaning. Throughout the entire book, John draws on images and numbers and words that kind of point to other passages of scripture and other themes of the gospel. There's all kinds of symbolism in the book of John. And we'll get into some of that uh, this morning within this passage, but there's even more that we could really unpack. And when you start to dig into it, when you start looking at all of these connections that he makes, what becomes really clear is that John sees everything through the lens of Christ. Jesus is the one that all of scripture has been leading up to, and he is the one that's paving the way forward into a new future for the entire world. So let's dig in. John 2 verse 1 says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay, so Jesus' mom, uh, so Jesus and his mom and the disciples are all at a wedding in a place called Cana. And this is actually one of just two appearances that Mary makes in the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, we only see her here at the wedding, and then uh, at the end when Jesus is on the cross, about to be crucified. Now, do we have any uh, introverts in the room here this morning? Any introverts? If you are a highly introverted person, not, we don't have a single person, not a single introvert in this room. Of course, the, intro, the introverts are going to put up their hands. That was a ridiculous question. <laughs> oh, so silly. Okay, if you're an introvert, let's rein it back in. If you're an introvert, the chances are that weddings are probably not your favorite thing, right? Because of all the people all the people, and all the people and stuff. Uh, But our weddings today are nothing compared to the weddings that took place in in this culture. In this culture, weddings were an introvert's nightmare. Okay, They typically lasted for about a week. A week! The entire community would often be invited. Even people from neighboring communities would often be invited. And people would come and go for the entire time. And like the bride and the groom would be treated like royalty. Weddings in this culture were a really big deal. All right, verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, running out of wine at a wedding in our culture might be kind of awkward, right? Might be a bit of a disappointment. But in this culture, Running out of wine at a wedding was a catastrophe. Okay, it would have been humiliating. It would have been a terrible mark on this family's reputation. This is like an honor and shame based culture. The, the couple probably would have become like the joke of the town for years to come, and the bride of groom would have considered it to be like a, a stain of bad luck on their fu- the future of their marriage. So Mary notices that the wine is all gone. And she points the problem out to Jesus. And then we get Jesus' response. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. What? (laughs) Right? What? What is going on here? Doesn't that seem like a strange response? 
doesn't seem like a strange response for Jesus to give to his mother in this moment. The first thing that is so striking, I think, when we hear Jesus' response is that Jesus calls his mom woman, right? Now, if you're a young person, or even if you're not a young person in the room, I don't recommend this. I don't recommend that you do this. The English word uh, woman comes across in this passage. It sounds to our ears like, like it's rude, right? But in the Greek, that actually isn't the case. The word that Jesus uses to address his mom here means something like madam or like my dear lady. This is the same word that Jesus uses to address his mom towards the end of the gospel when he's on the cross, when he's taking care of her, when he's on the cross. So it's not rude, but nonetheless, this, the response comes across as out of place, right? And before I, di- I uh, kind of digged into this passage, I pictured Jesus as like an angsty teenager, you know, or like a millennial <laughs> that wouldn't move out of his parents' basement. And his mom was like, could you get a job or something? And he was like, get off my back, mom. It's not the right time. I'm not ready, you know? kind of what I thought. That's what I pictured. And scholars have some different ideas about what dynamics are at play here. Maybe Jesus is kind of redefining his relationship with his mom as he transitions into this season of life where he's going to be going about his ministry. Maybe the motives that were driving Mary to ask for Jesus' help were kind of like off base from his mission as the Messiah, and he wanted to correct that before he moved forward and corrected the miracle. But I think what's most uh, important here is that Jesus knows that that the moment he starts performing miracles, he is setting out on his journey towards the cross. Jesus uses this expression, my hour has not yet come, the one he used in this passage. He uses it again and again throughout the gospel until chapter 12, verse 23 when Jesus is approaching his death on the cross and he finally says, the hour has come, right? Jesus knows where this is all heading. And as as I've thought about this more, I've wondered what kind of conversations Mary and Jesus would have had with each other about what it would look like when he stepped into his role as the Messiah. I wonder what other dynamics were at play in this conversation? What kind of eye contact was being made? What tone of voice was being used? And we don't get all of those details, but I I bet that this was actually a tender moment between a mom and her son. This was a moment of tension for Jesus. This was a moment of resistance. It was a point of decision. So much hung in the balance of how Jesus responded in this moment. And then let's look at verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. Mama knows. Mama knows, right? Mamas always know. Somehow Mary knows that this is the moment. And she might not know how Jesus is going to intervene, but she knows that this problem is as good as taken care of 
when it's left in his hands and that whatever he says can be trusted. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. So Jesus has the servants fill up these huge stone jars that were used for Jewish purification rituals. Uh, He has them fill them up with water. And if you're like a metric system, kind of brainy kind of person, this would have been about 75 to 110 liters. It's the amount of water that each of these jugs held. And then verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So the servants draw out some water from these jars, and they serve it to the master of the banquet. And we all know how this story ends, right? But just for a moment, imagine what this experience would have been like for those servants. They know what they're serving to the person in charge. They know what they just drew out of that jar. They have no guarantee about how this is going to play out. They just know that Jesus' mom said to do whatever Jesus says. And so they take the risk and they hold their breath. And the master of ceremonies is blown away with the quality of wine. And he pulls aside the bridegroom and he says, man, everyone else serves the good stuff first. right?" And then they turn to the cheap wine as soon as everyone's a little tipsy. But you, you save the best for last. And then verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus' glory was revealed through this sign, and the sign inspired belief in his disciples. So this morning, we're going to look at three layers of meaning that are all folded into this story starting with the real-life circumstances as they kind of played out in real time in this situation, but then zooming out a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and looking at how it speaks to the question of Jesus' identity and how it fits into the story of God's salvation breaking into the world. So on on the most basic level in this story, we see Jesus intervene with compassion to address a situation of need, to address a real problem, right? He intervenes with compassion. A little while ago, I ordered some pizza. I put in uh, an order online earlier in the day, and all afternoon, I was just waiting. You know, I was so excited for this pizza. I was really looking forward to it. But about 15 minutes before the pizza was scheduled to arrive, I got a phone call from this pizza place, And they said, we're really sorry, but we can't get you your pizzas on time because, get this, 
we've run out of cheese. <laughs> right? And on the outside, of course, I was like, oh, no problem. Don't worry about it. No big deal. But on the inside, I was like, you've run out of cheese. Who was responsible to keep track of the stock of cheese? You're a pizza place. You can't just run out of cheese. Whose fault is this? Who's to blame here? You know? And if it was you, like, I'm sure there's more to the story. No shame. You know, it happens. But my first gut response was to go to this question of who could possibly be to blame? And isn't that so often our tendency when things go wrong? Whether it's running out of milk, you know, at home, whether it's running into a challenge at work or dealing with social problems that are plaguing our communities, so often we get stuck fighting about who's to blame. In this situation, when everyone else would have been pointing fingers at each other and getting a buzz over who was going to be the next talk of the town, Jesus doesn't even raise the question. He's not worried about who's to blame. Do you know what Jesus is thinking about? Jesus is thinking about what God can do. He steps into this situation of scarcity where there wasn't enough, and he demonstrates God's abundance and generosity by making more wine than they could ever need. Scott McKnight calculated that this would have been equivalent to about 907 bottles of wine. I could have done the math, but I figured if someone else did it, why? Right? <laughs> 907 bottles of wine. And not just any wine. This wasn't like the $8 a bottle stuff. He didn't spare, uh, he didn't just spare the bride and groom from all that shame. He actually made them look good. Where in your life do you feel like you don't have enough? In our culture, we get really consumed with this, right? We are constantly striving for more stuff. We never feel like we have enough time. We often find ourselves feeling like we aren't enough, like we don't measure up. We live in a world of not enough. The stories like this remind us that we can trust in and rest in the joyful generosity and abundance of God. But there's more. You can turn with me to Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. And I'm actually going to go get a drink of water. So take a really long time to, to, to flip in your Bibles. I'm going to go grab my mug. <laughs> in the book of Isaiah... We get all kinds of prophecies about the coming Messiah and promises about the healing and restoration that God is going to bring about through him. And that's what we're looking at in this passage. Isaiah 25, verse 6. So now I'm out of breath. <laughs> Had a little cardio workout. Whew. All right. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all their tears and will remove 
forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In this day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. I'm not sure what's going on with my throat. I'm going to say I'm going to struggle through this, but we're going to get through it together, okay? So just don't be alarmed by the uh, scratchiness. Throughout the Old Testament, wine is used as a symbol for two things. Joy and the age of the Messiah, who would come and who would set things right once and for all. Fishersman's friend, could you grab me some water? That'd be great. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> if you turn it into water, this is the moment. Oh, it's going to happen. This is where the whole sermon's going to come together. It's all on you, Doug. <laughs> All right, things are so rowdy this morning. In the Old Testament, wine is used as a symbol for two things, joy and the age of the Messiah, the Messiah who would come and who would set things right once and for all. And the jars that Jesus used in this miracle were intended for Jewish purification rituals. These jars represented the law. They represented the old religious systems and structures that people relied on to make themselves right with God. Jesus takes these vessels and he has them filled to the brim with water. Filled to the brim and then he transforms it into wine. Let's see. It's white. (laughs) (laughs) This is where it happens though, right? the best wine I've not joking. <laughs> he takes these vessels and he has them filled to the brim with, with water, right? And then he transforms it into wine, which is the symbol of God's kingdom breaking into the world through the Messiah. The old way has been fulfilled and a new order of things had arrived. The purification rituals were never really able to make people clean. They couldn't change people's hearts. They didn't lead to intimacy with God. But on the cross, Jesus gave up his life so that we could be made right with God. Not because of anything we do, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but by his grace. Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 5 says, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. This is the new covenant that we have in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just, uh, what did he, uh, (laughs) sorry, I'm struggling. When Jesus went to the cross, what did he give his disciples as a symbol of the new covenant? What was it? was wine, right? Every time we take communion, every time we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are, uh, or in our case, it's like the purple freezy juice, right? (laughs) We are remembering this new covenant. We're remembering that the old is gone and that the new has come. We're remembering that we have been set free. So the first sign that we read about in the book of John gives us a framework to understand the rest of the signs. God is doing a new thing through Jesus. 
He is the Messiah, and through him, God's kingdom is breaking into the world. But there's more. There's one more layer. Do you think we can get through it? I think we can. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, and we get to experience glimpses of it, but it hasn't yet come in its fullness. Right? And I don't need to convince you of this. You know that this is true. You guys are so cute. I just like... <laughs> okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to finish the next few things I'm going to say, and then I'm gonna, I need a volunteer to come read up one passage. And when I'm done, I'm going to be in complete better shape. Can I get a volunteer to read scripture? Okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so we see this, right? The, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't yet come in in its fullness. We're living in a broken world. And this sign doesn't just point to the new covenant as we experience it now in knowing that we've been forgiven and that in knowing that we're filled with the spirit. It also points ahead to the new heaven and the new earth. When God's fullness will, will, when God's kingdom will come in its fullness and when everything will be made right. And the next Uh, chapter of the book of John, in chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist, who refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. In 3 verse 28, John says, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And this image comes up again and again throughout the, the New Testament, Right, This image of the church as the bride and of Jesus as the bridegroom. In Revelation 21, verses 2 to 5, John describes an image that he has of the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, he says it like this. This is where Eric's going to jump in and save my life. Right here, man. Yeah, thank you. Can you read it slow? I can. Revelation 21, starting at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. All right. I'm recovered. The fact that Jesus' first miracle takes place at a wedding points ahead. Right? It points ahead to the promise that one day Jesus will come again and everything that's wrong will be made right and everything that's broken will be fixed and put back together. All sickness will be healed. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. There will be no more sorrow or death or crying or pain. Our good God will make all things new and we will live in his perfect love forever. So what does this mean for you and I today? 
How does this impact the way we live as we go about our day-to-day lives and do our work and interact with people and go through different challenges? Let's look again at that verse from John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's hope would be that this sign would draw you back to the core of the gospel. That you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not just believe it cognitively, but that you would let your life be shaped by the reality that you have been forgiven. That you are free from fear and sin and shame and the law that you have been saved by grace through faith and God's Holy Spirit is living in you. John's hope would be that we would believe and that by believing, we would have life in his name. This is an invitation to trust in the joyful generosity and the abundance of our good God and to live in expectation of the ways that he's active and moving in our lives. And what does that look like? Mary tells us, The words that she left the servants with are words for us to live by. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. In other words, listen to what he says. Listen to what he says and step out in obedience. Because you can trust that he has your best interest in mind. You can trust that when he calls you to something, it's because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. And he's gonna lead you through it, even when things don't seem to make sense. And Mary knew this more intimately than anyone, didn't she? With that whole virgin birth thing, right? Those stone jars were really big. Filling them to the brim would have been quite a task. This was a big commitment. And the servants probably had a really hard time wrapping their heads around how 650 liters of water was going to do anything to move the needle when it came to solving the wine problem. They weren't given the details of how things were going to unfold. They didn't have the big picture of what Jesus was going to do. They were just given one step at a time. But because they listened to Jesus and trusted him, because they did what he told them to do, even though it didn't seem to make sense, they got to be a part of saving this wedding and sharing the good news of the gospel with the people around them and sharing the gospel with everyone who has read this passage ever since. When God calls us to something, we don't always get to know. Like we don't always know how the story's gonna end. Often he just gives us the next step, right? The next right thing to do. 
And the call and the invitation of discipleship is to be attentive, to be attentive to the nudges of the Holy Spirit, to listen, and to live in a posture of surrender, to take the rest, to step out in obedience, to do the thing, trusting that God is with us and that he'll lead us every step of the way and trusting what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 28, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The kingdom of God breaks into the world when his people do what he tells them to do. Not out of obligation, not to earn God's favor, we've already got it, but out of responsive obedience to the God who loves us and to the gospel that sets us free.